Hello, welcome to the edited version of Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version of this conversation, then you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles and become one of our Patreon supporters, uh, which you can do for as little as $1 an episode. That's one US dollar, and obviously it will depend on which of our economies is declining more, uh, how much that actually works out in pounds, uh, euros, etc. And also, if you're a Patreon supporter, we give away a box of books every week to one of our Patreon supporters, and we have more more bonus episodes and bits and pieces. Just a quick notice before we start, say make sure you sign up to the Cosmic Shambles mailing list because we've got some very special live shows to announce soon and uh, you'll get all the information about those on the mailing list as well as some special codes for some discounted early bird tickets which we'll be announcing very, very soon. So go to cosmicshambles.com, just scroll down the homepage there and you'll find a place where you can pop your email address in and get on the mailing list. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get on with today's episode. Here is Robin and Josie with our very special guest, Kate Grenville. Okay. Hello, welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, uh, our special this is a series, the first lot is we're doing uh, Australia and New Zealand and we're currently uh, in Sydney and uh, we are joined by the author Kate Granville who we're going to talk about fiction and non-fiction I think. And it's lovely to be here, thank you for asking me. Well this is, uh, I wanted to start off, is it alright if I ask the first? Of course. Just because I, first, I knew of you mainly as a novelist and then I found out that you, uh, in terms of non-fiction and, and is it in fact your latest book or one the one that came out in 2015 is a non-fiction work? Well the last two are non-fiction actually. The 2015 one is a, is a kind of biography of my mother, a sort of, um, yeah, that would be a close, the closest approximation to a genre. The very last one, which is out only two months ago, is called The Case Against Fragrance, so pretty self-explanatory. It's a book based on good science about how bad fragrance is for all of us. And so that started from you were doing a book tour and you started to be you, you ill and you were like, why is that right? You, you didn't quite know what was going on. Yeah, look, I've always known I was sensitive to fragrance. Look, when I was young and I, I started dating, you know, in my 20s, I would douse myself, of course, in some thing that the ads told me I should be dousing myself in. And I would then go out with a boy who was always doused in Old Spice. Did you have Old Spice in Britain? Old Spice and High Karate were the two leading (laughs) fragrances. (laughs) High Karate? Old Spice meant you were a surfer, and that had, in in our UK version, it had Carmina Burana, Carlos Carmina Burana, with people surfing, and you think, I'm a surfer. And then High Karate would have vaguely racist um, karate. That wow. would mean, you know, what do you want? Do you want a surfer or do you want a man that may well kill you? The two mm. sexy archetypes. Mm. Yeah. Rough trade or sport. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they never mm. had a fragrance for librarians. Which is very sad. <laughs> Ye oldie, musty book. Anyway, uh, half an hour into the date, I would feel shocking. I would have a headache, my eyes would be sore, I'd be coughing. All I would want to do is crawl, crawl back home to bed. And I thought, gee, what's wrong with me? Neurotic about boys, neurotic about dates. Clearly, you know, there's something pathological going on. Anyway, finally I worked out it was nothing to do with boys or dates, both of which I enjoy enormously. It was just the fragrance. And when I left it off, and if the boy left off the old spice, uh, I was fine. So that went on until in in my 50s I realised that I had got worse. I got sick, I got much worse after that. And then I did this book tour for the book about my mother. And and it was a headache from go to woe, really. The minute you get into a cab, which of course will have a fragrance diffuser in there somewhere, mm. then you go through duty-free at the airport, you get on the plane, which is full of other people's fragrance. 
So headache wall to wall. But in the last hotel, and a lot of hotels are fragranced, mm. in the last one it was heavily fragranced but not in the room. And I thought if I can block out the smell coming in from the corridor, there were some of those, you know, I call them stink sticks. I think they're called fragrance diffusers. Uh, so I went out and got a, a, walked in the streets of Launceston until I found a shop that sold me some wide packaging tape, which I simply put around the door so I was sealed in like a pharaoh in the tomb. And I gradually felt the headache recede. But at that point, I lay on the giant bed, you know, that happens in these hotels, thinking, I have just crossed some invisible boundary into the land of the crazies. I thought, I'd better not tell anybody, I'd better not tell the publicist that I'm travelling with about this. The irony is, she'd seen how sick I was, and after, long afterwards, she said to me, I thought about buying you a roll of tape for exactly that, but I thought you would think I was crazy. So... It was during that book tour that I decided to do some research and the facts that I found were so startling and so unknown to me that I thought actually, um, well, the most startling fact is that a third of the population suffers from these problems, headaches or asthma or so on. Uh, therefore, it might be worth a few other people knowing about it. So that's, that's where the book started. I mean, I would never have dreamt of writing a book that involved reading many, many metres of heavy, heavy science studies full of words that I had to look up. See, I like the fact that when you said I realised I'd perhaps travelled into the world of the crazies across the line, I normally think that's a moment of tremendous relief. So I wasn't certain if you would go, I was relieved to realise I was no longer within the realm of the same. Look, I've always known I was eccentric. <laughs> But I have I I put up a good pretense. I, I, I can fake I can fake being normal reasonably well. A lot of people pick it up instantly. But I thought this is kind of beyond my normal eccentricity. This is in the realm of the mad hippie rant. You know, the old lady on the bus that gives you a uh, a religious tract, something yeah. like that. Kind of not fun crazy, but kind of boring crazy. See, my favourite one on a bus was where there was a man who got on. He had some uh, passages from the Bible uh, uh, drawn into the back of his jacket, his suit jacket in kind of uh, uh, tipex in, in what's it called, the white, whiting type white of stuff. Out, yeah. and, uh, and he started to uh, project these um, biblical passages and someone else put down their Bible and went, Mate, can you shut up? I'm trying to read my Bible. Ha! And there was this great <laughs> argument going on between them. But that's a difficult thing, though, isn't it? That bit where you go, because there are a large number of people who are charlatans or have been misled and believe gobbledygook, mm -hmm. it's really hard to, if you suddenly go, well, I've done the... I mean, that's the main thing, though, isn't it? It's about the research. Yeah. It's about, to me, it's with a lot of, of science ideas and pseudoscience is... Where are the footnotes and can I check that paper? Exactly. Well, there are 220 footnotes, so you can check every fact that I have mentioned that isn't, you know, like just like the sky is usually blue. Every fact that I've mentioned has a footnote. 220. Drove the editor mad, drove me mad. Look, I decided right in the beginning to only use the gold standard of science, which is um, scholarly articles published in peer-reviewed journals mm -hmm. like The Lancet and Nature and stuff like that. Um, so it's pretty heavy going for a novelist. But, you know, uh, my mother was a pharmacist and she taught... I can remember her teaching me chemistry around the kitchen table. And although I am no scientist, I make no claims whatsoever, I do find it fascinating. Two things. First of all, cause and effect is so beautifully inexorable in science. But the other thing is scientists' kind of neurotic caution 
If they did the experiment on a Wednesday at 2 o'clock, what they will say is at Wednesday at 2 o'clock, this particular kind of rat exposed to this particular thing, this happened. And they kind of are very reluctant to go beyond that. That means you can trust them. Mm. So I decided to make my book as trustworthy as that. And so that, was this, this is your first time writing in this kind of way? It is. I've written other non-fiction books, but they're not as uh, they're not science not not science-based. No, and of course my publisher, I have to tell you, my publisher, who of course knows me as a writer mainly of historical fiction, which has done very well, so he's very happy about that. I said to him, Michael, I I have written a book about fragrance, and I would quite like to publish it. Yes, a science book about fragrance. The blood left his <laughs> face. I've never quite known what that phrase meant, but I knew it when I looked at Michael's face. And he said, Kate. For you to be writing a book about fragrance based on science would be like Mozart giving up symphonies and taking up greyhound training. The, the, other, the other thing about that is that I told that story at the Adelaide Festival recently to a big audience and in the book signing line later, a woman came up, handed me a little slip of paper. She said, look, you might be interested in this. Uh, my husband's just written a book about greyhound training. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think that expression on your publisher's face is, uh, I would call it Raymondian. And Raymondian is the reaction that the publishers of Raymond Briggs's The Snowman had. And they said, what's the next book you're going to do? And he said, it's about an old couple during a nuclear war no, no, and how be... they die of radiation sickness. It's a very... Do you want to do any more? No, The Snowman's really covered. And will it? How many dolls? Well, there could be a little vomiting doll <laughs> and there could be the hair drops out of no, the doll's head. It would be an old... It's about an old couple, brilliant, who really love each other. Oh, that sounds lovely. And in the book, they reminisce quite a lot about their love and their life together. Oh, this is lovely. Also, there's a nuclear attack. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> it's an amazing piece of work as well. Oh, Do you know God, the, the, right. the... No, no, I don't. Oh, my word. It, it actually changed in the UK. Uh, the uh, radiation, all the warnings about if there was nuclear war, were such nonsense. And in the book, this old couple follow the leaflet. Yes. And, and so they think they'll survive the, the nuclear war because put they've a, taken down a door and a put door it at an angle and they're sleeping yep. under it. Yep. <laughs> and, I mean, Raymond Briggs is a, is a wonderful... And this is something that I, I'd like to... Because you... I, I hate ideas of the two cultures, and I think it's it's gobbledygook, and I presume also because of the background of, of the, where you were brought up in a family of experiments. This idea that someone who is an artist uh, or seen in the art world should not go into the site or indeed that their readers will not be interested it seems to me i don't know if you found the some of that attitude there as well which is saying oh no but you you do historical novels you which of course involve an enormous amount of research as well mm. that's right i mean research is not nothing new look i did expect that and and apart from michael making that fundamentally joking um thing he'd been a fantastically loyal and supportive publisher he just couldn't resist making the joke i think um, so I expected that kind of thing. I expected all sorts of flack, actually, but I haven't had that. On the contrary, people are saying, here is somebody with a background in research, it used to be history, now it's science, but you know what this writer can do is kind of translate that often unreadable sort of primary material into something that a general reader can really engage with. So really, there's a continuity there. It only looks different. Well, the greatest science books are the ones that tell a story beautifully yes that's what we want we want stories and i think that's a beautiful thing to see now is the a lot of crossover mm -hmm. where you have people from from the arts thinking right i want to tell you know bill bryson's book yeah uh had a really big effect on just uh, you know it's probably the most mainstream one mm -hmm. but it made people go oh yeah these are really great stories his about book about science who, yeah, yeah, yeah who are kind yeah. of 
uh, you know, the, the, the eccentricity, the tenacity, the mm-hmm. passion. Mm-hmm. I mean, we always end up talking, because we're doing science shows while we're out here, and you always end up talking about someone like Richard Feynman, mm-hmm. who is a mm-hmm. Nobel Prize winning physicist who's working quantum electrodynamics, and he's playing the bongos, and he's learning to draw. And, and he's a fabulous talker about science. Mm. I mean, he is genuinely charismatic about science. We actually have a bit of an equivalent here, Karl Krizelnitsky, I think that's how you pronounce his name. He will be on with us tomorrow night. Oh. And he's doing this. Yeah, Dr Karl. Oh, Dr. Carl! So, Amazing. Dr. Carl is. I heard that when friends of mine were over in the UK uh, with him uh, when he was doing a thing called QEDCon, he literally couldn't stop. Uh, they're walking to the venue, and suddenly he noticed the way that the paving tiles, I think it was, had been put together and the geometry used. And the next thing is, he's lying on the ground looking at the angle, and they're going, um, Dr. Carl, you are speaking in 10 minutes. No, but the tiles, you see, the way that. And I think. Look at how they tessellate. Yeah, and that, that to me is what. This is where scientists are far more more whimsical than artists because an artist couldn't get away with that I think you'd be like oh that guy's such mm. a jerk writing yes. his poems he's, he's walked to the end of the pier to write a poem what a jerk whereas I think when it's somebody who's an acclaimed scientist you're like it's very important that they walk to the end of the pier Right now, do you know that's I mean? right. It's the real thing. Yes. This is this is not a this is not an affectation. Oh, I can only write on yellow paper on the third day yeah, of the month. Yeah, because we know that you can write anywhere very yeah. easily, especially even probably more easily if you get up at eight a.m. and you start work at yeah. nine a.m. That's right. <laughs> yeah. The big difference for me, the science lectures and so on that I've been to, is question time at the humanities festival. Writing so on, people get up and they say, "Oh, look." Um, I'd just like to share a little story with you. And they're like, on and on and on. So the chairman finally has to say, and your question is, at the science things, some hatchet-faced person stands up and delivers a compressed little packet of question. In about three words, they get to the nub of something. It's a genuine question. And then they sit down and listen to the answer. Oh, yes, but they please. always have to prefigure it with. I found that when I, when I was I was on tour in August with uh, uh, Brian Cox, who's, who's out mm-hmm. here doing stargazing, and... And we did a UK tour as well. And every time we do a tour, the questions will start with, oh, I know this is probably a stupid question. Oh. And, and I realise, and this is, I, I think, one of the things that has kind of driven us and with the shows that we're doing over the next few weeks is to say, if your question comes from the heart and you, don't know, you want to know why that thing does that or why you have this kind of perception, it's not a stupid question. Why would you know as much about gravitational waves as somebody who spends their entire life in a laboratory experimenting to try to discover gravitational waves? Yeah. Of course you won't. And I think there's a different level of fear, which is everyone can feel that the arts is approachable. They can be very angry at a painting or comedy. Gee, but also what's funny is I dream of people at a Q&A saying, mm, I, I'm not very confident about this because what, what you always get, you know, with the sort of thing that we might do will be, I'm more confident than you will ever be about this. Or <laughs> the thing which is, this is more of a comment than a question, which is, I, I was reading some tweets about that yesterday for some reason. A few of my friends were talking about it when somebody said, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here, but when people say this is more of a comment than a question... That is terrorism. (laughs) It's the funniest thing in the world. But yeah, no, I think the culture around science is one of a combination of humility and enthusiasm, which is like the two most exciting things. Yes. The um, (laughs) I I I want to say about history. Writing Mm. history is um, because I've talked to some novelists who go, I spent a month researching this particular thing about the bubonic plague, and then I realised it's for one sentence. I didn't need to... And but that's classic with writing stand-up as well, isn't it? Like, you can think that you want to write about all these highfalutin things. You can read loads and loads of research, and then the joke ends up being you hitting yourself in the head. 
But that's, right. you know, you needed that path to get there anyway. I disagree. See, I think that, well, you, it might be the same, I don't know, but I think in stand-up what you do is you have an alibi for going, I have to read these books, and really you're going, brilliant, I found an alibi <laughs> for reading what I want, pretending I'm doing a lot of heavy research <laughs> into my stand-up show, which turned out not to be about Samuel Beckett at all, or whatever it might be. Sure. But, that bit of when you are because you must be very i presume you get pedants i presume you must have because certainly in television historical dramas the number of times you will hear that a miner's lamp was actually invented two years after the time that you know poldark was set or whatever look i take it as a great compliment because those people who write to me it doesn't happen that often because i am pretty careful uh, but when it does, I think this is good. This person knows that I would like to get it right. And the, the tone is usually, uh, the tone is never nasty. It's always, look, you know, love the book, but just point out that actually the, the sun doesn't usually rise in the West. That kind, of, <laughs> that kind of thing. So I think, you know, what a huge compliment they're paying me. They know, they, won't, they know I'm doing my very best to get it right. That historical, you know, I do love doing the research. And it seems to me... Uh, there's a bit of a misunderstanding about research if those people think that they shouldn't have had to do it for a month to get that fact. It's, you know, art is extremely inefficient. That's the thing that I think our corporate culture uh, community doesn't quite understand. Mm. Efficiency isn't always what you're aiming for. So certainly if you know exactly what you want to research, you go and find it, or you can even pay someone to go and find it for you. But the way art works, it seems to me, and I think a lot of other artists in all forms would agree with this, it's more a matter of throwing yourself into some rather mysterious uh, vortex, a sort of maelstrom, opening yourself to all the possibilities in there, becoming a kind of passive, you know, Keats talked about negative capability, and I suspect that's what he meant, opening yourself in a kind of passive way to be a conduit for... What feels like stuff coming from the outside, it's probably actually coming from your unconscious. But the only way you're going to get to that rather than some rather dull, bland, cliche, predictable stuff is to just let it happen. Let everything be relevant until finally you start to funnel it down. And that's what I love about research, to plunge in, read a whole lot of unnecessary stuff and in there say, oh, wow, never thought of that. Wouldn't have ever found it if I wasn't casting my net so wide. Yeah. And something, you get energised, and energy is what it's all about. Something can be correct and as boring as batshit, but if it's got energy, it will work. And how do you, when, in, in terms of the start of it, I mean, before even of it, when you, uh, do you find yourself, you're just reading something, you see something, you go to a particular location, you see an object, and you start to go, what is the story behind that object? Is that how? Exactly, yes. Ah. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I love going to landscapes and just thinking, you know, I'm just going to wander around in this landscape. And it's true, I do have a notebook in my back pocket, although sometimes I don't. I just have the brown paper bag in which my lunch was wrapped. Um, uh, Museums. I mean, the British Museum, whenever I'm in London, I just wander at random. I mean, you get lost there anyway. Hard not to do it at random. You suddenly find yourself in front of a glass case of something you wouldn't ever thought was interesting and it's, it, it may not be that you actually write about it. It's not efficient in that way, but it will set your brain working in some way that you suddenly think, ah, oh, wow, there's something here. I'm going to follow that, follow that energy and, and let it take me where it will. And how, thinking about 
the kind of the Australian literary scene when when you were a child how important was it when you started to find because I think very often it's when you find a book that is written by someone from your city from your you know when you start to realize oh it could be maybe this is something I could do this is not merely you know the Dickens or whatever it might be I wondered whether because we were talking before before you came about some of the Australian fiction and I, my, my favourite is such a cliche. It's Picnic at Hanging Rock. I just love Picnic at Hanging Rock. I think it's, uh, I read it when I was 15 for the first time and I keep going back to it. Um, but I wondered what for you was, if there was a moment where you went into a bookshop and here was a book that came from nearby. Look, I can only say if only. I was born in 1950 and until about the 1970s, Australia was like this little chip, this little inferior chip of Britain, partly because of the, the copyright rules about, about, uh, about uh, writing and publishing. So what was that? Well, it was almost impossible for an Australian writer to get any kind of traction with an Australian publisher. There was only one Australian publisher, basically. So almost all Australian writers were edited and published from London. Now that, as you can imagine, had all kinds of distorting effects. Well, also, it would take so long to send things, get things sent back. Well, yeah, that that wasn't the real problem. The real problem was that we were living in a second-hand culture, largely. Uh, So, you know, I spent my childhood reading Swallows and Amazons and Enid Blyton and all that stuff. So my head was, you know, at school we learnt, you know, Wordsworth and so on. So it was a, it was a, we thought about, people still talked about home with a capital H here in Australia. My grandfather apparently spoke about home. He had never been to England, but he talked about it as home. Now that's the degree of kind of colonial uh, baggage that we had through my childhood. Now Patrick White, of course, was the, was the explosion on that scene to write about, um, you know, in particularly Riders in the Chariot. I remember reading that when I was about 13, when it first came out, without any real understanding of what it was about. But the extraordinary thing was this was Australia he was talking about. In fact, it was about Sydney. Uh, but he was a bit of a one-off. Um, for me, as a writer, and I thought you couldn't possibly, uh, there was no way he was a precedent for me in any way like that. He was just this marvel who actually talked about the place you could see out the window instead of, you know, daffodils dancing in the breeze. What actually turned the corner for me was going to, to live for five or so years in London. And, of course, it's totally familiar. You know it all and you feel like a native. But, of course, the natives make it very clear that you are not, <laughs> particularly then. The attitude now is, is fairly different. But in those days, it was fairly unpleasant being an Australian in London because you were patronised to the hilt. And so you were in this terrible state. You felt that you had come home and yet you were being treated like an outsider. That, I think, is what shifted it for me and made me realise that actually, let's say goodbye to all that second-hand Britishness. Let's actually plunge into whatever we, you know, here it is. I am Australian for, for ill. I mean, there's a whole lot of stuff I hate about Australia, always has been. But that's where I am. So let's, let's work with that. So was it, is it the 19s? Because I was thinking that in terms of, of cinema, the 1970s seems to be the moment where it stops being British and American directors, it stops being Michael Powell or I think it was Ted Kotcheff who did that. Really spooky. I think it's been turned into a miniseries. You'll, you'll know the name of it. Donald Pleasance is a doctor in the outback and a teacher basically ends up in the middle of nowhere. Sounds like Waking Fright. Yeah. Yes. I only yes. saw it for the first time about uh, two or maybe a yeah. month ago. Yeah. It's really... And, and a friend like... of mine was saying... Saying that that culture hasn't entirely gone. 
anything that's kind of you know the, the, it's yeah. it's oh you it's really spooky but then you start to get Australian directors, you start... Because I, mean, mm. I remember in the UK when suddenly there'd be an Australian film season and there would be uh, Heat Wave and there would be Picnic at Hanging Rock mm. and there would be you know, all of those things that were kind of a different identity. Mm -hmm, exactly. And the same was happening in fiction. I mean, there was a whole... Um, you know, we got a Labour government in 1972. Is it coincidence that the arts blossomed? Definitely not. Um, for the first time, for example, there was a there was some form of government subsidy for some writers. So suddenly you had a blossoming of fiction. Um, Frank Morehouse, um, Keneally, I guess was a was an international name, and even more than, important than those big names, there was a feeling that there was a whole uh, kind of ecosystem of literature. It wasn't just these towering oaks like Christina Stead who after all was a kind of exile, and Patrick White. You had the whole ecosystem, the weeds underneath, the people who were not that good, but that sense that you kind of needed the whole depth, the richness of a literary culture. Mm. You need all of it in order to have a proper literary culture. It's not just about the big stars. And that started to happen in the 70s across all art forms, I think. So who should we be reading? Who have we? Who will we possibly have missed out? In I mean, what, what, what were the novels for you that you thought this, this really changes... Uh, Patrick White was the obvious one. Christina Stead, um, The Man Who Loved Children, is a frightening, extraordinary, bitter, wonderful, wonderful book. And that's a very Christina Stead sentence. She loved to string about ten adjectives altogether <laughs> and apparently refused to be edited. That's fantastic. Um, as far as contemporaries, I mean, I think Helen Garner does extraordinary things because she plunges right into various quite detailed bits of Australian culture, like um, a particular uh, a criminal law case. She'll go to court and f funnel it through. And in doing that, she will, she will kind of um, engage with the actual texture of contemporary Australian life in a way that, you know, many novels unfortunately don't. Uh, so there are, there's a lot of wonderful... There's a, there's a writer you may not have heard of. She's a Melbourne writer called Carrie Tiffany, and she's written uh, only two novels, but they are quite extraordinary. Not everybody loves them the way I do, but I think she's fantastic. And she's a good example of that person who will never be... Well, she might be. I shouldn't condemn her to this, but, you know, perhaps she will always be a kind of boutique taste, let's say. People like me will admire her. Uh, and we need... We need all of that, and, and, and we're getting it, although now that the arts funding has been cut so much, because of the economy of, well, the lack of economy of scale for Australian writing and publishing, uh, it is ferociously difficult to make a living as a, as a writer or a publisher in Australia. Do you, um, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit as well about the doing, you know, writing a book, One Life, it's about going and looking at the life of, of your mother. Yes. And that to me is it's a very interesting area, which it seems particularly over the last 20 years, uh, choosing, you know, that person who has shaped your life and shaped mm -hmm. who you are. Why did you decide when you decided to do it? Uh, look, mum had always known, she'd always told me family stories, including her own, because she knew, she was a woman from very modest background. Her parents, her father was a publican, uh, and her mother, you know, worked behind the bar too. She knew that those people's stories are hardly ever told. Mm. She'd, she'd trained as a pharmacist, which for a woman born in 1912 was extremely unusual. And that gave her freedoms, mainly the freedom to earn your living, that most women simply didn't have. She had that incredible gift of financial independence. Uh, she was also a feisty kind of woman. Now, she knew that 
the story of those people are seldom told. It's the rich, the famous, the glamorous that get the stories told. But, you know, the great 99% don't have their stories told. And yet their lives are probably much more interesting because their choices are more difficult. They're often not very broad, their choices. Um, so she told me these stories and I urged her to write them down and I also tape recorded her and thank goodness I did. After she died, and I always thought that I would just put it together for her grandchildren. She had five grandchildren. So after she died, I started to do that. Just sort of glued them together, really. And I thought, I'll go to Office Works and have five copies bound with the photos and so on. It would be a nice thing for the children. But as I read it, I realised, as I read what, I'd, what she'd written, I realised that actually she, she was representative of a whole generation. She was born in 1912, so she rode waves of change. I mean, it was an amazing couple of decades for everybody, but particularly for women. You know, I mean, in Britain, I think women didn't get the vote till, was it 1923? Mm. 1917 No, it's after 1917. No, but I thought we no? got 1917 for some of them, then 1923 okay. for a few more. So there was the vote. There was contraception, which is even more life-changing for women. There was equal pay or, or you know, theirs to it. The right for, for women to, to get an education. And my mother rode each of those waves of change because she could, you know, she was an intelligent woman. She could see uh, what, she, what she needed. But she thought, my story should not be forgotten because it's the story of, you know, the 90% of women. So as I wrote it... Um, I got really interested. I mean, I loved that about it because I love history. I thought this is a, a bit of history that's a bit of a blank. And I do love to write into those blanks. As with the Secret River, I wrote into the blank of what actually happened when we got here and had to fight it out with the Aboriginal people. As far as I could see, that hadn't really been kind of much covered in, in fiction. So there was a blank in, in history. that Those few decades between the wars, basically. Uh, but the other kind of unintended thing was that I realised that having known my mother as her daughter, of course, all those years and loved her, suddenly I knew her as a woman. Uh, she was like an equal to me and she was facing the same problems that I had, um, how, to, how to juggle a career and, and, ch and children and family, for example. That's a, that's a perennial one for women. Um, how to deal with a man who won't do the housework. Again, a perennial problem. Um, how to be, how to be, you know, feminine in inverted commas, but also assertive. How to do that impossible balancing act? All these are problems that I have. My daughter's generation has them too, and here was my mother clarifying that at a very early stage. So I think it would be if everyone, you know, like the the mass observation diaries that existed in yes. the UK, and. I Hang think on, tell me more about the that. mass observation diaries. I'm not entirely. It was 1930s in, into the Second World War. There's a book by Simon Garfield called Our Hidden Lives, in which he looked at some of them. Oh yes, sorry, I've read about this. Yeah, yeah. and it's and basically, and, and they also did a film with Victoria Wood playing. Uh, they they adapted one person's particular diary, and Victoria Wood played the part of this this. And and it's oh, just wow. this great, as you said, it's that bit where sometimes people don't realise until almost too late that everyone's story. Even if it ends, my, my dad's kind of just writing through his life at the moment. He's eighty; he's going to be eighty-seven, and uh, and it, you know, it's there's lots of things which a proper snapshot which stops it just being wars mm. and Downton Abbey. Yeah, oh, and, and that thing which goes exactly. Yeah, that's why I love Howard Zinn. You love Howard Zinn, don't of you? course. Oh, do you know what I would recommend to people is this uh, feels Malachi Whitaker, Malachi Whitaker, the Bradford Chekhov, um, who was a woman who wrote short stories in the I want to say the 30s, but I think it was earlier than that. But basically, she 
wrote this collection of short stories. Everyone raved about it. She wrote one other one. And then she was like, yeah, I don't want to write anymore. Bye. That's all. The, the Bradford Chekhov, and it's exactly that. It's this writing about that period of time from a working class perspective. Absolutely unheard of. Wonderfully important. Dropped in. Sort of not as famous as she ought to be. I th well, now, isn't that the case with so many women, mm. particularly oh the God, ones who absolutely. don't write, you know, nice little what you might call, you know, Hampstead love affair type things. Yeah. All that, you know, girly stuff, which I am totally impatient with. Our equivalent would be Barbara Bainton. Now, everybody's heard of Henry Lawson and all those, you know, outback stories. Barbara Bainton was, was his contemporary. She writes these, just one little tiny volume of the most savage little short stories I'm about a woman's life. Away so that I can read it, it now. They are... They are terrifying and and brilliant. And yet, you know, she's barely known. Whereas Henry Lawson is on all the stamps. She's mm. not. It's so depressing, like, women being denied their posterity and even seeing it in the last 10 years, you know, even seeing it with, you know, all all types of creatives in That's the last right. 10 years. Even now, I'm, I find it heartbreaking because I just think, is this always going to be the way that women are denied their posterity? Even women that were the most successful... Yeah of their generation, you know, 20 years later, not being given that reverence and not being given that legacy in the way that male artists are. That but that's why we're here to talk about it. <laughs> with a song by Neil Diamond. Um, um, hang on, I'm so sorry. Barbara uh, no, Bainton. Barbara Bainton. Barbara, B thank you. B-A-Y-N-T-O-N. I'm, I'm writing this down because I'm so excited about it. <laughs> she doesn't even realise we record it. Well, she listen back. <laughs> I'm very much here as the layperson, and so the fact that I'm taking notes... People, no, you read far no, more than me. No, I don't think I do. But uh, there the, we go. Um, let's have one of our arguments. <laughs> the, uh, the, the hidden figures thing, I think that's interesting. You know, there's a oh, movie yes. about that. yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's still alive and well and with us. It's kind of gone underground a bit. It was interesting having a female prime minister here in Australia and seeing the misogyny that crept out from under its rock and hurled all kinds of stuff at her. Uh, that was scary because you could think that it had gone. It had it it, it hadn't. It had just gone underground. Um, and in terms of in terms of the arts. Um, it is well, Helen Helen Garner, who is a magnificent writer, a deep, subtle thinker. Uh, until very recently, she's older than I am, so she's a, she's an old lady. Until very recently, she was passed over for prize after prize mm. after prize. Um, I think you know I have to have a fight with my with the the designer at my publisher every time. He wants to give me pink end papers. <laughs> And he wants to give me, you know, that sort of uh, cursive italic script, which is the script of the romance. Sure. It's girly. It's girly. And I, I, you know, I have to say to him, Chong, I'm not girly. My books are not girly. I have no interest in any of that. So I think it's, I'm afraid it's still with us. Yeah, it's, it's so depressing. Look, my daughter is 27 and she is in a feminist book group. Now... I have mixed feelings about that. On the one hand, I think, isn't that fabulous? They are delving into these problems via fiction mostly. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, how tragic that they still need to do it. These issues are still alive and well for them. Yeah. You know, let's keep working at it. I think we're going to round up now. Yeah. Yeah. Thank um, you. But what's yeah, your thank next... You so are you much. working on something at the moment? I presume you are. You're always working on of something. Of course, yes. Yeah. Yes, look, I'm just starting... Um, Another historical novel. There are so many untold stories in Australian history, particularly about women. So there are actually three. They're like buses lined up at the bus stop, you know, with different different numbers. They're all historical. 
they're all about women whose stories would illuminate not just the past. I don't really write about the past. I really write about the present that is the result of the past having happened the way it did. So I can't wait to get onto those. Wow. And one of them will, one of them will, they'll be neck and neck for a while and then one of them will edge ahead and that will be the one I'll go with. Actually, the way you write is you sort of, that's very interesting. You wait and see which one gets further far yeah. enough out of the traps. Because it is about the energy. Sometimes there are books that you think, oh, I should write that book. Yeah, you know, that would yeah. be a good write, book to write and someone should write it. And you get into it and you think, well, yes, yeah, someone should write it, but it's not going to be me because no, I'm doing it out of a sense of I should rather than I really want to. Yeah, I think as well with ideas as well, you don't realise what you're going to fall in love with. It's like you're dating a lot of people. <laughs> And then you go, ah, me and this idea must be exclusive because all these other ideas that seemed really great, they were flashing the pan or exactly they were someone I thought I should. Not that I'm saying I'm dating, but you know what I mean, yeah. Yeah, I do know exactly what you mean because you can't predict it. I mean, the unconscious is so much cleverer than the conscious that you have to just allow that unconscious to tell you where to go. Yeah. I trust it. If you're going to trust the unconscious, that's a great way to end. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been such a pleasure to talk to you. It's been such fun. Thank you both. Thank you very much to all our Patreon supporters and anyone who's also donated uh, via PayPal. And we would like to specifically thank our Patreon supporters today who are Nina Holst, Lindsay Williams, Patrick O'Brien, Ryan Davis, Nick Garrard, Jack Les Camilla, and uh, unless that's Jack Les I don't know, Jack Les Camilla, I think, and uh, Oliver Harvey. Well done for me calling it Oliver Harvey, by the way. Um, Box of Books, I imagine when you were younger that was not so great, but now it's a wonderful thing. Um, Box of Books winner, by the way, is Angela Morton. Congratulations, Angela. If you fire us an email to contact at cosmicshambles.com, we will get your box of books out to you as soon as possible. And remember, you can become a Patreon supporter of Book Shambles for as little as a dollar an episode. Uh, just go to patreon.com slash bookshambles or follow the link at uh, cosmicshambles.com slash bookshambles, which is obviously where you'll also find reading lists and all the past episodes of the series. And while you're on the Cosmic Shambles site, have a poke around at all the other blogs and podcasts and documentaries and all sorts of stuff we've got going on there. And we will be back next week with a brand new episode thanks for listening this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network josie robbins book shambles was produced by trent burton of trunkman productions